So um, first thing I do want to say is I am human and I make a lot of mistakes. And uh, when I was editing the video last week, I saw that I called uh, Kane Abel a couple of times, which I fixed when I edited the video for publication. So it's all correct in the recorded version. But but I, I'm hoping you guys followed what I was trying to say. And, and if I do that, feel free to jump in and ask me to clarify if I say something wrong. And sometimes I'll say something wrong and I don't bother to go back and correct it the next week just because it was not a major point. Um, so the whole point of this is not for you to look to me as um, some magic expert, but for me to just equip you to know where to look in the stories, how to look in the stories, uh, and to give you some uh, interesting perspectives on the stories. Uh, so forgive my many errors. I will try to keep them to a minimum, and I will uh, verbally correct them the next week if they're significant. So I am going to share my screen now. Okie doke, you should see a blank gray slide if you don't. Uh, say something. And here we go. So we turn a big corner in Genesis today. We are leaving behind all those etiologies in the first 11 chapters, and we're introduced to a whole new cast of characters. And these characters can, are going to be with us the rest of the way. Their names, the things that happen to them, the choices they make are going to come up all the way into the New Testament. This today is the beginning of an epic journey from one end of the earth as they knew it to the other. The, the characters we meet today will live and die on these pages, but their journey continues. Their journey is our journey too. Are any of you guys old enough to remember flannel graphs in Sunday school? These are a few left over from my Sunday school teaching days. Oh man, those things were so much fun. It was like just a piece of cardboard with some flannel on it. Usually it was light blue um, and sometimes it was green and the teacher would stick these little pieces of paper up there on the flannel and they would just stick there and she would tell the story, the Bible story, using these little stick, these little paper figures. This was clearly in the days before um, video, but I love them. I love the interaction. Uh, and geography plays a huge role in why things happen the way they do in the Hebrew Bible. So I want to tell you this story through the today through the lens of a map. And to do that, I had to get creative with the technology. So I recorded a, a little video which is my version of a Zoom flannel graph using whiteboard and markers. As with everything, I'm going to give you a screenshot of all this when I update the study guide this week. So for now, you can sit back and relax. You don't have to try to take, you know, a, a lot, do a lot of drawing or anything here. And uh, one note before we get into it, I have the hardest time in the world pronouncing Sarai's name. It ought to be pronounced Sarai. The I on the end has this little tiny brief E sound after it that I cannot get my tongue and my throat around. So I tend to say Sarai. Just, just know I'm saying it wrong. I, I just can't seem to say it right consistently. Okay, you ready? Here we go. 
So this is the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And this is Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula. And crammed up here along the edge of the Mediterranean is Canaan, where Israel is today. Along the eastern edge of Canaan is the Dead Sea, sometimes called the Salt Sea in the south, and the Jordan River, which runs between the Dead Sea in the south and the Sea of Galilee in the north. And all that part where it says Canaan, that's like a ridge of mountains. That's mountains that slope down on the west to the Mediterranean and on the east towards the Jordan River. Now way over here in the east is the tip of the Persian Gulf. The Mediterranean Sea in the west, Egypt in the south, and the Persian Gulf in the east were the bounds of the world for the purposes of the people in the Hebrew Bible. And these boundaries are going to expand as we move through the Bible, but for now, this is the world to them. The northern edge was defined by two great rivers. We've already run across those, the Tigris and the Euphrates which flow down and actually join together as they approach the Persian Gulf. Forgive my art skills here. I didn't quite get them together in time. Um, but anyway, all in between and around the rivers, as you can imagine, is extremely fertile land. See how it follows the Euphrates to form a sort of crescent moon shape? That's why it's called the Fertile Crescent. Duh. Um, and I kind of wonder if it has anything to do with the worship of the moon god in some of this region. I, I don't know. But at any rate, all this big area down below the crescent is desert. You wouldn't want to travel across that. So the fertile crescent, quite naturally, became a lucrative and extremely busy trade route connecting the east with the west. So, okay, let me erase some of this green so I can show you some other stuff in here. A man named Terah lived in the great city of Ur, right where the Tigris and Euphrates join. This is in the Bronze Age, around 2000 to 1550 or so BCE. BCE stands for Before Common Era, and it's exactly the same thing as BC, but BCE is what scholars call it. And that's what we'll call it in this class. This, uh, this is the time of the great King Hammurabi of the famous eye for an eye law code that governed, he governed Ur around this time. Further north along the Euphrates, you'll find another great city, the city of Babylon. And this whole area is called the land of the Chaldeans in the Bible. The boundaries change over time due to the vagaries of war, but whenever you see the word Chaldea or Chaldeans, just think Babylonians in your head. Now above the Euphrates is a huge, fierce mountain range. That's another reason travelers stick to the trade routes along the Euphrates. The great empire of Assyria controlled this whole northern region. Not Syria with an S, but Assyria with an A. Big difference between those two. And the entire region as a whole is called Mesopotamia. I know it can be confusing, all this overlap. So I'm trying to keep it as bare bones as possible for you. But the geography makes a big difference in the Hebrew Bible, and I don't want you to be lost. No pun intended. 
At almost the northernmost point of the Fertile Crescent is another town that shows up a lot in Genesis. It's the town of Haran. At the end of chapter 11, Terah picks up his entire extended family, including his son Abram. Uh, we say uh, Abram, but in Hebrew it would be pronounced Abram. And his wife, Sarai, and their nephew Lot, and his whole household, and they traveled to Haran and settled there. No reason is given to us. It kind of sounds like Tara didn't want to go any further and just plopped down. Maybe there was some family link there. He had a son named Haran who had died before this whole adventure started. We just, we don't really know why he stopped at Haran. But at the beginning of chapter 12, when Abram is about 75 years old, the Lord tells Abram he has not gone far enough. And the first great promise to Abram is made. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise to Abraham, part one. And it's all about blessing. Um, and so Abram gathers his household, his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the rest of his servants and slaves and livestock, whatever he had, and begins a long trek south to Canaan. Here, let me get rid of this desert. Nothing happens in there until we get a lot farther into Genesis, uh, even beyond Genesis, a lot farther into the Hebrew Bible. And let me erase the word Canaan so I can show you where Abram and Lot go once they get down there. But remember, Canaan is already populated. This is a land of city-states. Every fortified city has its own king, so you'll have lots of kings happening here. And here's one you'll recognize, Jerusalem, although back then it was known as Salem, just the last part of the name, Salem, which means peace. And down here is Sodom and Gomorrah, both close together. Abram and Lot and their households are traveling in a tent caravan, stopping, setting up camp, then moving on. Until finally they come to the great tree of Morah at Shechem. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know there's not much in the way of big trees there. It's very deserty, scrubby, not unlike the Texas hill country. So wherever there was a big tree, especially if it was on top of a hill, that became a place where gods were thought of. All right, you should now see that map again. Do you see the map? Yes, ma'am. Yay! All right, thank you. Okay, so it was at the tree of Morah uh, in Shechem that Abram received the second part of the promise. To your seed, I will give this land. And at the tree of Morah is where he built his first altar to the Lord. After that, Abram traveled south from Shechem and camped between Bethel and Ai. And there he made a second order altar. That was a big, Bethel was a, a big worship place. Um, so I imagine there were lots of worshipers and altars all over there. 
So then he traveled further south to the Negev, which is a desert region down around Sodom and Gomorrah. You can see that on the map. I took this picture a couple of years ago in the Judean desert. You can barely see the Dead Sea off to the left on the horizon. It kind of blends in with the sky, but it's out there. And Abram would have passed this way on his way south to the Negev. So he gets to the Negev and what happens? A famine. There's a famine so severe, he's forced to travel all the way to Egypt to find food and water. And when he gets to Egypt, he is afraid the Pharaoh will take Sarai into his harem because she is so beautiful. Now folks, Sarai is 65 years old at this point. I can't even imagine the sort of beauty that is that potent, even after all this hard camping. And according to the Egyptian standards of the day, Pharaoh can't take her into his harem as long as she's married. So she ought to be safe, right? Nope. Abram is terrified the Pharaoh will have him killed in order to get to her. So he tells Sarai to tell everyone they are brother and sister. So a word about sexual morality here. Abram and Sarai are indeed brother and sister. According to Abram himself in Genesis 20, 12, they had different mothers, but Terah was the father of them both. That in our culture would be incest. But in their culture, this was perfectly acceptable. And I point this out because I want you to begin to understand that sexual standards and practices are established by culture. You will see them change over time uh, as we ramble through the Bible. But here, God did not care one iota that Abram and Sarai were half siblings. Remember, this is the couple he's founding his entire chosen nation on. It's kind of like Adam and Eve. They were not doing wrong by being naked. Abram and Sarai were not being sinful by being married, even though they were half siblings. God seems to judge both couples according to what they knew to be right or wrong within their existing culture. All right, let's see. So what did Pharaoh do? This is Tutankhamun, obviously. He won't come along for a few hundred more years. I'm using him as a visual stand-in here. But what did Pharaoh do? Well, in our story, Pharaoh did take Sarai into his harem and apparently had relations with her, thinking she was now his own wife. The only good news, I guess, uh, in this whole sordid story is that Abram avoided getting murdered. In fact, he was paid well for his sister. The whole, this whole saga made him very wealthy. And God did not punish Abram or Sarai. And instead, he inflicted Pharaoh and his household with serious diseases for taking Sarai as his wife. I have, I have no idea why God punished Pharaoh. It seems like he was innocent in all this. Well, as much as someone can be innocent who steals other people's daughters or sisters. 
But in any case, it doesn't seem like the point of the story is the morality of any of the three players. It seems like they were all wrong one way or another. So why is this in the Bible? And why is it stuck in this particular place in the story? I think one reason is to show that Pharaoh had the means to know right from wrong as far as God was concerned. And that's going to come into big play later on. And also that there is a tradition in Egypt of hewing to a strict morality ordained by deity or deities. As for why it's here in this particular place in the story, I'm going to let you guys think about that some in your breakout groups. But before we do that, we have one more story to go in this section. After Pharaoh discovers Sarai is Abram's wife and kicks them out of Egypt along with their new wealth and their God, Abram and Sarai and Lot all went back up to the Negev and then on to Bethel and Ai, where Abram worships again and calls on the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord has power. Abram knew this, and we need to know it too. It is important which is why I spent pretty much the whole first class on it. The name identifies Abram's God as this particular God, the God of the promises, his God, Abram's God. Take a look at this map. Where is God? Well, he was for sure in Haran when he told Abram to get up and go. And he was in Shechem and Salem and Egypt and at the altar between Bethel and I, you see what is astounding is that Abram's God travels. Do you have, do you know what a big deal this is? Ancient gods did not travel. They were tied to the land, to a particular region. Abram's God is unique in that he travels with him wherever he goes. He does, God does not need idols fashioned by human hands. God is perfectly capable of appearing and speaking and rescuing Abram all on his own. This is a God who is fully present anywhere. So things should be smooth sailing for Abram from here. He's escaped Egypt with his life and his family intact. He's a very wealthy man now. This thing should be great. But no, things start to get crosswise right away. The land there in the middle of Canaan simply could not support both Abram and Lot's mighty households with all their livestock and people. It's very sparse there, if not downright deserty, as you can see. So remember how I told you there was a spine of mountains all down the center of Canaan? Well, Abram took Lot up there and said, we need to split up. There's land enough here for both of us. You take first pick. I'll go whichever way you do not choose. And Lot showed his true colors here. He looked to the west and saw nothing but hills going down to the salty Mediterranean Sea. And he looked to the east and he saw the verdant Jordan River Valley. And he said, oh, I'll just take the Jordan Valley and all that good part going down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot picked himself up and went and settled in Sodom and Abram stayed behind. Now, Abram is human. He naturally felt like he got the short end of the stick. But the Lord comforted him and made the third part of the promise. Lift up your eyes 
and look as far as you can see in every direction. All the land you see, I will give to you and to your seed forever. That is legal terminology that was common in deeds of sale back then. I give this land to you and your descendants forever. That's like a legal phrase. And I will make your seed as numerous as the dust of the earth, literally uncountable. Now remember, at this point, Abram is over 75 years old. His wife is 65 some odd years, and they have no children at all. And the Lord had Abram take a survey of the land, just exactly as if he were purchasing it. He was to step off the length and breadth of it as his own. He literally had a survey and a walkthrough, just like we do nowadays when we purchase a home. And after that was done, Abram settled about halfway between Salem and Sodom in a town called Hebron, where the tree of Mamre is, a different tree. The tree earlier was the tree of Morah. This is at Shechem. This is the tree of Mamre in Hebron. And there he built his third altar to the Lord. Now, Abram's nephew Lot was a real pill. Um, not only did he take the best land, but the next thing he does is get himself kidnapped. Remember how I told you every fortified city had its own king? Well, it's actually even more complicated than that. Regions would have kings, and the city kings would be forced to pay protection money to the regional kings, and so on up the food chain. So right around this time, about nine of these various kings, including the king of Sodom, went to war with each other. And the king of Sodom and his allies lost. And his town was despoiled, and Lot and his entire household were carried off as spoils of war. Well, one of the townspeople escapes and runs to tell Abram that Lot has been captured. And Abram calls out his own personal army of 318 fighting men and some other allies in the surrounding region, and they pursue the coalition of victorious kings. They find them, and they defeat them. It is amazing. Abram not only gets Lot and his household and household goods back, he gets back all the people and plunder taken from Sodom. So naturally, when the king of Sodom hears this, I don't know how he escaped getting kidnapped himself. He must have hidden or something. But anyway, he hears about this and he goes out to meet Abram. And they meet sort of halfway, right near Salem. And the great priest of Salem mediated their meeting over a meal of bread and wine. This priest is named Melchizedek, and he's going to come up as a significant figure later in the Bible a couple of times. He's a big deal. His name literally means king of righteousness in Hebrew. Melech is the word for king, and Zedek is the word for righteousness. Melech Zedek, Melchizedek. And the text says he was a priest of the Most High God. The name for God here is El, the singular version of Elohim, which we recognize from class one. Some scholars question whether that Melchizedek's El is Abram's God or is perhaps the El who is the supreme deity of the Canaanite pantheon. I think for the purposes of the Hebrew Bible, the El here is very clearly Abram's God. The references to Melchizedek later in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament make that very clear, that Melchizedek worshipped 
God, our God, the Most High God. And for, for another thing, Melchizedek blesses Abram as a servant of El, God Most High. You know, he, he re Melchizedek recognizes Abram as serving the same God he does. And Abram himself in this story recognizes Melchizedek standing with God and gives him a tenth of the spoils as an offering to God. This is the third time recorded in the Bible um, where tithes were brought to God. The first two were the tithes brought by Cain and Abel. This is the first one that specifies one-tenth as the amount. So the king of Sodom is standing here, around here twiddling his thumbs, watching Melchizedek honor Abram and pretty much rubbing it in that Abram succeeded where he failed. So he pipes up now and in a sly attempt to rebalance power, tells Abram, oh, never mind about returning the spoils, just give him his people back. Well, if Abram keeps the spoils, there's the sense that he will be indebted to the king of Sodom, as if the king of Sodom had rewarded him, as if Abram was subservient to the king of Sodom. And Abram refuses flat out. He allows his allies to take their rightful share of the plunder, but he refuses to be indebted to or to take anything himself from the king of Sodom. And so the king, with all his goods and all his people, including Lot, returns to Sodom, while Aaron, Abram um, heads home. And Abram is none the better for the encounter, except for the blessing of Melchizedek. So, okay, now it's your turn. On page six of the study guide is a worksheet for you to dig into the three parts of the promise to Abram. The scripture references are at the top, so you can find the passages, and I've already written in the promises on the first row. The questions for you are down the side. For each promise, look at how the promise was given. Think about what Abram might reasonably have expected to happen next. Then look at what actually did happen next. I've given you passage references to help you with that part of the question. And lastly, think about why God let things happen this way. And then repeat this for each of the three parts of the promise. I think a few people were just blown away by the fact that Abram and Sarai were brother and sister. <laughs> that didn't get mentioned a lot, does it? <laughs> it doesn't. You're like, okay, that changes my understanding a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, um, and that's, you know, one of the points that I was uh, thinking about and, and why I pick these things out as we go through, because I think we are so accustomed to having the Bible interpreted for us. And it yeah. is interpreted through the lens, through the cultural lens of the people interpreting it to us. And they naturally highlight the things that are important to them and skip over the things that don't quite line up with what they think. And I, that's a fallible for all of us, including me. So, um, so I'm hoping as we go through to kind of free some of that binding that you might feel um, that has happened to you over your lifetime of study um, without you even knowing that it happened. Right. Absolutely. Okay, everybody, um, be sure to mute unless you're, um, unless you're speaking, but go ahead and leave your videos on. It should be okay if we, if we 
have trouble, we'll start turning them off. Um, who wants to, to tell me what you saw on uh, the, the, what your group talked about on part one, on the first part of the blessing? Somebody pick that. I vote that Marlene talks. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, the first part, um, we saw that, that it, it says that God spoke to, to Abram um, rather than it being a vision. Um, and that we felt that, that because of, of the language of this, this promise of blessing, um, that, that Abram probably expected that there was going to be pretty smooth sailing from that point. You know, I'm going to bless the people that bless you. I'm going to curse the people that curse you. And it all sounded like this is going to be a breeze. Um, and then um, he, he built an altar in Shechem. And, um, and then um, we didn't quite get to why did we think God let it happen like this. Um, so um, I'll let somebody else pick that one up. Did you, did you, um, did anybody have something for what ha actually happened next? It was a little obscure. It was a little bit hidden in that verse six. That he had to find a place to, um, to settle himself. And he had to find a place where there weren't already flocks already on the land. Right. Uh, it, so it, it, when it, for that little phrase in there that says, and there were lots of Canaanites out there, <laughs> kind of gives you a hint that he was running into adversity. He could not find, it was like, there's no room at the end, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so what did you guys, um, why did you think God let it happen like that? Well, we said also, you know, he was probably surprised to find out that the land he was being sent to was already occupied. <laughs> but the fact that it was occupied by Canaanites, um, we thought was interesting because of the fact that we talked about when we were talking about Noah. And some of us thought that Canaanites came from the descendants of Cain. But then we found out, no, they come from the descendants of, is it Ham that was um, cursed by Noah? I think so. And so, so these are the, the descendants of the cursed son of Noah that are out there in this land. Yes, and I am so glad you guys picked that out because that's why that story was in there about Noah and his sons. This is why. Great. Okay. So, um, oh, and did you get to, did you guys get to, uh, why did you think God let it happen like this? There's no right or wrong answer. This is just, what do you think? Renee had good answers on that. Um, a couple things, um, we talked about is because God was maybe following through on Noah's curse for the Canaanites. And secondly, I think um, God has a habit of teaching patience through adversity. Yes. And watching if Abram would obey it through the adversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the adversity is, is less about God doing it to us than about using it for us. 
Um, I think the fact that there were Canaanites there meant there was adversity. Um, and I think that God starts right off the bat teaching Abram that when I make a promise to you, it's not a transaction, it's a relationship. And we're going to walk through it together. All right, let's, let's move to, part, to the second part of the promise. Who wants to share that? The Lord appeared in a vision. That's true. And do you think it was, it says the Lord appeared. Do you think he was dreaming or do you think the Lord physically appeared? We said we thought it was in person. Okay. So we don't, it doesn't and, say, so hold that thought as we move forward through Genesis. Okay. But clearly there was something special about this part of the promise that was different than the first one. To your seed, I will give this land. All right, what did, uh, and so what would Abram might have expected after that? He said that he, he probably expected mm -hmm. immediate ownership. You know, God is, is making this promise. This is the second time the promise has been made. And so it's like, okay, now it's going to start happening. Right, right. It's like now God's like showed up in person and said, it's going to happen. Okay, so what did happen? Well, we also said that he probably expected Sarah and he to start having children, lots yeah. of children. Yeah, right? Absolutely. And you know, they've been heartbroken over not having any. Having kids was like the whole reason a woman existed back then, you know? So this was a big deal. So what actually did happen? Famine. <laughs> <laughs> According he to plan around all, a lot. it didn't go according to plan at all. What'd you say? Who was that? I didn't see you. Um, he had to move around a lot. He was more, he was still a nomad. Yeah. And not only did he have to move around, he had to move out of the country he'd been promised. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So why do you think God let that happen? We had looked at the fact that, you know, he has been this nomad all the way through. When he went to Egypt, the result of that whole story and that, that, that you know, major screw up was that he came out of Egypt extremely wealthy and a man, a man of means and a man of stature when he returned to Canaan. Yep. Yep. Any other ideas? Woody had some really good stuff to say. Woody, do you want to share with us? I don't even remember what it was. You, you go ahead. Okay. Um, he said that it, it was um, essential in making Abram the hero of the story to give us all a, a, a good feeling about Abram and how he's such a good guy. I mean, he went you know, through all this stuff and he's still trusting God. And, um, and again, um, you know, we talked about Renee's idea about um, learning patience. Um, we had lots of lessons in that one. But, um, you know, I said, it's like, if you're writing a novel, you have your, your hero of your story, your main character is a really good guy, but he's got one fatal flaw, he's got one thing. And so for Moses, our fatal flaw is, he can't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. 
You mean Abram? Yeah. I did it again. Woody, help me. <laughs> I did that through the whole thing. I kept calling Abram Moses. I don't know why. My brain is not functioning on that today. Anyway, Abram had this fatal flaw, which was he couldn't tell the whole truth. Um, which he told the truth. She is his sister. But he left out the part, you know, he, he the the sin of omission rather than committing a sin, you know, but but yeah, that, that was his, you know, that we're we're seeing Abram in the light of um becoming the hero. Right. Well, and I, I think that there's two ways to look at it too, is is that for Abram himself, um, he's going through a um honing process, kind of tumbling like a, 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 a rough stone being tumbled, and he's making big mistakes, and he's learning from them, and God is blessing him even in spite of these big mistakes that he's making. I mean, he did not trust God to protect him and Sarah when they went to Egypt, period. And part of this, too, could it be that, um, you know, through all this, he's gaining great wealth and people and enough to amass an army to fight all these tribal kings who were there and be blessed by Melchizedek later as well. Yes, and I think that that is just a, a, in a capsule um, how God meets us when we screw up. God takes the worst mistakes we make, the worst things that happen to us, even if they're our fault, and he redeems them. God can redeem anything if we give it to him. And I think that, that this is, I think this is what Abram was learning, but I also think this is why who, the editor of these stories put this incident in there. This, these stories are here for us. They're not just a history. If there's one thing I've learned from studying these ancient writers is that they structured their stories very carefully. Um, and, and this is in here for a reason. So let's move before we run out of time completely. Let's move to okay. part three. So we had, um, you know, the name Lord was used with the Elmore capital, which is Yahweh, the breath. So we're like, was it a, did it? Did he just breathe it over him? Did he actually speak? I don't know. Um, or did it just like come over him? This knowledge um, and um, I love my, I love hearing you guys using this information to inform yeah. your understanding. Yeah, and then um, what might he have reasonably expected to happen? Um, that we we I think we all kind of struggled on that part. I have a question mark. Would would he expect children? You know, because he was already told that it was from his seed. Um, and then what happened next was Lot was kidnapped, and there was a big old war, a, a regional war, um, tribal warfare. And then why do we think God let? let it happen like this we didn't get that far um but if i look at it i think um you know if i think god is these are all for us and god is all about having these relationships um you know he finds what was lost lot was kidnapped lot could have been lost and lot could have been killed 
and Abraham or Abram amassed an army and rescued his nephew. And that's what God does to us when we're lost. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Other thoughts. What, and, and this can be other thoughts from any group on any three of these. What, what else kind of struck you guys? The um, third one there when um, that's where Woody came out with um, more about the looking at Abram as the hero because he went in and he rescued Lot and we talked about the fact that um, you know Lot kept making the selfish choices and the greedy choices and Abram just kept following God and Abram made the selfless choices and when it came time that Lot got kidnapped he very easily could have said screw him he took the good <laughs> land but he didn't he went and rescued him and um then you know he met Melchizedek and got the promise and all of that but but the big thing that we gleaned from and I think this might have been Renee that said this was is showing God's power I mean I, how many we don't know how many people were in the armies that he went against but it told us he had 300 and something men which to me doesn't sound like a very large army because it's not. They had that. So, I mean, he took his little bitty army and went against them and won. And, you know, all of this is just showing God's power to work again in spite of us. He can work with us in spite of us. Right. We, um, we said along a similar vein, am I unmuted? Yeah. No, you're, you're, okay. we can hear you. Hello. Um, <laughs> that, you know, all these promises were about Abram and his offspring and the things Abram was going to have. But at this point, when Lot gets um, kidnapped, is that instead of focusing on himself, just like she said, he had to focus on others. So instead of what he was getting, he went and he, like the hero she just said, went and he had to focus on others and go and get Lot and, and help. And then the fact that he didn't just uh, take the money from the king of Sodom, that, you know, when God had given him his, um, his promises, it gave him a sense of dignity of who he was in his relationship and who he was as a person to have ownership and control. But if this king of Sodom then just, you know, gives him these gifts uh, or spoils of war and then he goes off, it's like putting a layer between him and God. It's like, um, it's like, it, it's like he doesn't have the dignity anymore because, oh, well, here's the stuff. And like he kind of slinks off with his stuff and he's not just him and God. It's like him and then the king of Sodom and then God in terms of um, the wealth. Yeah, so this is, this is all uh, stuff to reflect on. Uh, this is the kind of thing to reflect uh, um, on who God is. We're, we're being introduced to who God is, and we're being introduced to who God is through how God acts and how God is in relationship with us and how it really doesn't matter what things look like from the outside. What matters is not what is happening to us physically. What matters is where we are standing and that we continue to stand in relationship with God 
trusting implicitly and explicitly that God is good and that God intends to bless us no matter what it looks like to us at this moment. Um, so I want to encourage you to think this through and think about it um, this week. And we will get together again next week.